If you would, please open in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. title of the sermon is Oppression and Generosity, two themes that emerge in our chapter. If you would, please stand together that we might visibly express our reverence for God's written word. We're reminded from scripture that the grass withers and flowers fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So as people strive to hear and heed it faithfully together. This is God's word from Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards." I was angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel within myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, From the twentieth year to the thirtieth year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. What do we ask now as we attend to the reading, especially the preaching of your word, that you would remember your people for good. That the same spirit that inspired and preserved these words down to this day 
would be pleased to bless them to our ears, that faith might be worked in our hearts, that we would see both the hope and the calling that we have together as the people of God, and then both small things and great, we would show ourselves to be faithful. And so we pray in the name of the one who is faithful for our sakes, even Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to begin the sermon by asking what you will likely find to be a somewhat awkward question. And the question is, what makes Satan smile? What makes Satan smile? Today in Nehemiah 5, we're going to think about not simply the story of Nehemiah as told in this chapter, but at least to a certain extent, the characters that stand behind it, Satan himself being one of it. Satan, according to J.I. Packer, is a hater a wrecker, and a destroyer. And only when he is ruining God's work in individuals and communities is he happy. Unfortunately, Nehemiah 5 paints a picture that would likely make Satan himself smile. But God, thankfully, is also in this story, standing behind and beside, as it were, the people of God, working in and through his people, ultimately for their good and for his glory. We'll approach our text this morning with the help of the three points that you have there in your outline, the first of which is a cry for help. So if you think back just ever so briefly to the last chapter, in many ways it painted a beautiful portrait of the people of God enduring opposition, and that opposition came from without, that is to say from outside of them, as people like Sambalat and Tobias and the Arabs uh, were the opposing forces mounted against the people of God. But if chapter 4 painted a picture of the people of God enduring opposition from the outside, chapter 5 that we're looking at today describes a picture of internal strife. Uh, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, uh, this is like a page taken out of that book where you might almost imagine a conversation uh, where Satan is effectively saying, okay, that didn't work, so let's try something else. If full-on frontal warfare won't stop them, then let's try dividing and conquering. A great outcry arises, not only from the people, but as is highlighted in the opening verse, also from their wives. The fact that the wives are mentioned makes it clear that this is a family matter. In many ways, it is the home that is under attack. When things are well at home, many of you know this dynamic, that when things are well at home, you can endure nearly any kind of battle with a measure of success. But when there is strife at home or things are unwell at home, it's hard to find the strength even to hold your own sword. People of God and Nehemiah are holding both swords and trowel, and they're exhausted. But not only are the people of God exhausted in chapter 5, so also are their supplies, and this is the problem. This is what leads to the outcry. Their resources, their material resources are drying up. They have become, as the language tells us, a great multitude of people, but their resources have grown scarce. Again, the last chapter painted a portrait of families working together, families who've come from all the neighboring villages of Judah to help work upon the wall. And it was a very pleasant portrait to imagine fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, all there doing the work of rebuilding the wall together. There's just one problem. People got to eat. And in Nehemiah 5, they're running out of food. Children standing alongside their parents working 
eventually coming to a point of hunger. And this work has gone on for quite a long time. Days have turned into weeks. Weeks have turned into months. Months have literally turned into years. And the people are growing weary, and their supplies are becoming exhausted. During this time, when Israel has come out of their homes and villages to set themselves to the work of rebuilding the wall, they've been neglecting their homes, they've been neglecting their vineyards, and their supply lines have grown thin. Food is running out, and it gets even worse. Not only are they tired, and food is running out, but they're apparently uh, those who have, who are taking advantage of those who have not. This is where the theme of oppression enters into the chapter. Verse 3 describes not simply the fact that they are hungry, but they are becoming impoverished, and some of them have mortgaged their lives away. Not, some of you are not old enough to remember 2008, but some are. I was pastoring in 2008, and remember when so many people lost their homes and their wealth. It was a really difficult time uh, for many. It was a hard time not only for families, but also for the church. In time, it actually proved to be a great time of refinement. Uh, Many of those who lost material things or their stuff were forced to focus on that which was even more important than their stuff. Here in chapter 5 of Nehemiah, we see the people of God mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, and their houses, all of this simply to get food. Apparently there was a famine going on. Begin to imagine, how many different arrows does Satan have? The opposing Gentile forces, internal strife, famine. The people were desperate for food. On top of being hungry and over-mortgaged, there were also taxes to be paid. King Artaxerxes and the Persians at this time were known not only for their very high taxes, but their rather relentless measures for collecting. It's almost like they were from California. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but I did. So desperate was the situation of the people of God that they were selling themselves and their children into slavery to pay off their debts. It's really a dark moment. They were, they were so broke, they weren't simply mortgaging their homes and their fields, they were mortgaging their children away as well. This is why the chapter begins with an outcry highlighting the outcry of women. In a certain sense, to paraphrase from elsewhere in Scripture, Rachel is crying for her children. The mama bears of Israel are watching their cubs being marched off as slaves. But the worst of it, in a certain sense, has not been revealed. In many ways, uh, this is the context and a part of the picture. The people of God are experiencing famine and poverty. They're mortgaging away their property, even having to sell off their own children to slavery. But this, this is the irritating, nagging question, to whom are they selling their properties and their children? In other words, who is the bank in Nehemiah chapter 5? This is the real embarrassment of the chapter. It's one another. Who has taken advantage of this dire situation of the Israelites? Other Israelites. It is the people of God extorting, using, and defrauding the people of God. So what verses 1 through 6 describe uh, is a seemingly hopeless situation, but it's a situation that in many ways goes from being bad to actually being worse. And this will carry us into our second point, Nehemiah's call for justice. So in the last chapter, we met these characters, Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs. These, 
warring Gentile peoples surrounding the people of God, these leaders uh, that are there in the same area where the wall is being rebuilt, who get angry and at one point even angrier. It's interesting how in the last chapter uh, you see the nations getting angry, but here in Nehemiah 5, it's Nehemiah that gets a little bit hot under the collar. In fact, in verse 6, he gets very angry as it's described. There are men of feeling and there are men of action. What's the difference? Well, uh, men of feeling are those who have strong opinions but take little action. Then there are men of action who have not only strong opinions but a will to act upon them. That is what we find in Nehemiah, uh, not simply a man of feeling but also a man of action who takes counsel within himself and brings charges against the nobles and the officials. These are the people at the top. Why did he not take counsel from others, at least a curious question to me. Why did he not ask other leaders their opinion as to what he should do? Well, there are two likely reasons. One, it's because the leaders were part of the problem. Second, the issues at hand were unambiguously biblical. In other words, uh, there were explicit laws already in the Bible that forbid Israel from doing exactly what you see happening in Nehemiah 5. They were clearly not allowed to do this. They're in violation of laws that God had given. They're taking advantage of one another. Uh, It was not simply bad from an optical distance. It was a violation of what Scripture clearly said. Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, you can name other chapters, forbid the people of God from loaning to one another with interest. But not only does the Bible forbid that, it also forbids what we might call usury, that is, unjustly take advantage unjustly taking advantage of another person's poverty. The Israelites in Nehemiah 5 are here guilty of both. They're loaning, not only with interest, but with high interest, to the point of the people who were taking out the loans being unable to repay them, and then they were taking advantage of it, making the situation even worse. And there's a very important point to be inserted right here, and that is God hates oppression. He not only hates oppression, he regards himself as one who defends the oppressed. Psalm 68, father of the fatherless, protector of the orphans and widows. How many times you see in scripture, not simply here, but if you zoom out all over the Bible, uh, where God gets angry, even at the people of God for neglecting to take care of one another, and even more so when they oppress or take advantage of one another. One of the most strongly condemning chapters in the Bible is Ezekiel 22, where God condemns Israel for doing exactly this, oppressing and taking advantage of one another. He condemns it there, and he condemns it here. And so Nehemiah calls this great assembly of the people together, particularly the leaders, and he scolds them. And he even uses a historical reference to chide them to the best of our abilities. Have we not bought bought back or brought back our brothers who were sold. What's he referring to? Israel's been impoverished before. And Israel's been enslaved before. And this was a great blight upon the people of God. This is part of the suffering narrative of the Exodus. But not only that, it's a theme that has recurred in the time of the exile. when once again, the people of God were dispersed were scattered, some of them sold, some of them enslaved. And part of what Nehemiah and the people here uh, at this time had done was sought to bring their brothers and sisters back to buy them out of slavery, only now in chapter 5, to enslave them themselves. Do you see the point? 
It's almost as though they have reintroduced and imposed the curse upon the people of God. But now you return and you do these things that you know was wrong in the sight of God. What you were doing is worse than what the Gentiles have done to us. In a certain sense, what the people of God are doing in chapter 5, it's like saying, is worse than unbelievers. Why is that? Well, because you, you expect the bank down the road to charge you interest, don't you? Uh, in fact, uh, you expect the guy selling you something to try to take advantage of you, at least those that are outside the kingdom. We don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We expect non-Christians to do what non-Christians do, to take advantage of situations, and if they're able, in a certain sense, even to enslave us. But you don't expect it to come from Christians, not from one another. They were not only enslaving one another, they were selling one another. Verse 8, it's really a deplorable picture. The people of God, people of God enslaving and selling one another. And they were so guilty, guess what their defense was? Nothing. They stood there in guilty silence, rightly condemned, having been called out. Sometimes the truth is not only piercing, it is silencing. And a deafening silence is all that you hear from the people when Nehemiah calls this great assembly and points out their sin and their error. He gives a rather blunt and unambiguous commentary in verse 9. What you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in God's ways? Ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord? Ought you not to prevent the taunt of the nations? It's really incriminating language. Not only were the people of God suffering at the hands of one another, the enemies of God were laughing and taunting. Surely Satan smiles in Nehemiah chapter 5 as the people of God devour one another with usury and interest. Verse 10 seemingly incriminates uh, Nehemiah. It may be a debatable point, but at least in the commentary discussion, it seems to be uh, labeled this way, that even Nehemiah himself pauses to recognize that he and his brothers were lending and exacting interest. It's very important to note that even Nehemiah pauses to recognize uh, that he also uh, has, in a certain sense, slightly guilt-stained hands. Whether this is right or not, Nehemiah clearly is a good leader, but he's not a perfect leader. He is not a faultless leader, but he is a very effective leader. And good leaders know that real change, meaningful change, always starts at the top. Repentance, in a certain sense, in its best form, trickles from the top down. He commands them to return And I'm quoting, this very day, not tomorrow, not a week later, he commands them to return this very day, their vineyards, olive orchards, orchards, houses, interests, everything. Everything that you've not simply taken, but effectively stolen in an unbiblical manner, return it this very day. Everything that you've been exacting from your brothers and sisters, their property, their families, their children, return it this very day. What Nehemiah calls for in the end is an immediate response. And what Nehemiah gets from the people, thankfully by the grace of God, you see it in verse 12, is actually that. It's an immediate response. The people respond to his indictment with repentance. They say, we will do it, we will restore it, and we will require nothing. There's a great point here. 
It's a, it's a painful one, but it's a really good point. Doing the right thing is often costly and painful. Doing the right thing is often costly and painful. And, and most of us in the room know that lesson. Doing righteousness can be expensive. It can be painful. The right thing is very often the hard thing, and, that, and yet that's what the people of God do. It's not simply the nobles and the officials, but even the priest, Nehemiah calls and calls to account, and he makes them swear that they would do as they had promised. Effectively, uh, none of the leadership here is above reproach, or at least perfectly so. It's not just the nobles and officials that are guilty, even the priest. And the next part of this is kind of colorful language. You have to imagine, Nehemiah is not only a great uh, leader and a, a passionate servant, but he can work up a pretty good sermon illustration on occasion. So he takes his garment, apparently there's something in it, presumably grain, and he shakes his garment in front of the large assembly. It's a little bit uh, dramatic, but the Bible's not above a little bit of drama. Our lives are full of it. And so he shakes out the fold of his garment visibly before this large assembly, giving them something like a literally visual sermon illustration, and he says to them, may the one who fails to do as he has promised be like the grain that is shaken out and falls to the ground. It is curse and threat. It is like saying, uh, those of you who fail to return your brother's property, their possessions, their family, uh, might he be shaken out himself? Might what, might what you've done to others happen upon you? This is a dark scene, isn't it? But notice, and thankfully so, that the last verse, at least in this section, uh, Nehemiah 5.13, gives us a little bit of a reprieve, a a moment of hope, a turn in the story, a bottom to the V that would otherwise spiral down and down and further down. For it is with the last verse in this section that the transition is made from oppressing the people of God to a model of generosity. And this will take us to our final point, but we'll be there a while. A model of generosity. Nehemiah, again, does show us a beautiful portrait of what good leadership looks like. I wonder, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, I suggested in a line that good leaders get people to do things that they don't want to do. But great leaders not only get them to do it, but to actually enjoy it. And that's what you seem to see here in Nehemiah chapter 5, is that not only do the people do what they said uh, they would do, notice uh, the language there, and all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. They said, Amen, which means, so be it. And they praise the Lord. Uh, This section of confrontation, uh, this ministry of rebuke that Nehemiah brings to the great assembly ends with an expression of praise or worship. Doesn't get much better than that. And then they follow through on the promises and commitments that they have made that they will return that, that which they have effectively stolen. They did as they had promised. I began the sermon by asking the question, How do you make Satan smile? It's at this point in verse 13 that you see that smile begin to turn upside down. And that is because Satan is not the only actor in the story behind the scenes. God has been at work, even while Satan has been at work. 
Satan's work has been that of dividing and conquering the people of God, but God is at work upholding and restoring the people of God as well. For where Satan is strong, God shows himself to be much stronger. Where Satan tears down, it is God alone who is able to build. And in the book of Nehemiah, very importantly, God is building something far more important than a wall. What he's building is the people of God. That is ultimately the point. The wall, in many ways, is just a wall. But it is context where the people of God are being refined. God is the one ultimately at work and his people, and notice that God is working in his very imperfect people. For imagine if I were to say God only works in perfect people, well, that would be awkward, because there are none in this chapter and none in this church. God only works in perfect leaders, well, there's none in this chapter, and there's none in this church. God is at work in his imperfect people, and God is at work in his imperfect perfect leaders, and for that uh, we can praise God and even see that God himself begins to smile, or God must smile at what happens next, because in the rest of this chapter what we see is really a very biblical model of generosity, a beautiful portrait of generosity and servanthood. So when you think about this next section from 14 through 19, uh, a way to summarize it is that Nehemiah in a certain sense is a rich man who empties himself on behalf of the people of God. a rich man who empties himself on behalf of the people of God. He is not simply a leader or a servant. He is the appointed governor of this area, appointed by Artaxerxes himself. If you remember from earlier, he was the king's cupbearer, given permission to go, and a royal uh, guard to accompany him, along with financial provision that he almost seems to boast about here at the end of the chapter, uh, how how wealthy he is. In a certain sense, uh, Nehemiah is a man of great means. Nehemiah is a man of deep resources and deep pockets as well. And he is entitled He is entitled to the governor's allowance from the people. He is entitled to all that the king provides. But notice, while taking the latter, he foregoes the former. Though entitled to the governor's allowance from the people of Judah, that is to say financial support from them, he did not take it. But the word in Hebrew is literally eat. It's really cool. He says, though I was entitled to it, I didn't eat it. I didn't take their bread. Why? Because they're starving because they're hungry, because they are impoverished. In contrast to the governors before him, who took daily rations from the people, Nehemiah notices or notes that he will not do it. Those governors even lorded it over the people, but Nehemiah is the opposite. He will not lord his station over the people. He will not say, you must suffer, but I will abound. And he explains why it is that he will not lord his authority over the people or exalt himself above them as well. It's because of the fear of God. Verse 15. Twice this language comes up in the chapter. First in the rebuke. Ought you not to have walked in the ways of God because of the fear of God? Here, it is the fear of God that motivates Nehemiah not to lord it over the people, but rather to become a model of generosity. And not only is he a model of generosity who refuses to hoard things for himself, Uh, He actually does the exact opposite. And not only does he model generosity, he continues to do the work of building the wall alongside the people. It's a beautiful portrait. Uh, Here is a man of great means who, if we wanted to, uh, he could stay in his soft, cushy castle. 
and just shout out the orders from on high or deliver them down by the hand of a servant. But rather than do that, uh, he notes that he himself continues in the work alongside the people. He's not above them. He is among them. He gave to the people and he served to the people. He took nothing and in a certain sense, he gave it all. That's at least the portrait that you have of him in verses 14 through 19. And if you're questioning whether or not he really was that wealthy, uh, verse uh, 17 adds a moreover. It's like he's saying, and just in case you were wondering how much I gave away, let me explain in a bit more detail. There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. He didn't simply feed them. He made them smile. He's a model of generosity. He is a model of kindness. He fed the people at his own expense. A man of great wealth, a man of high station, but in a certain sense, a man who, because of the fear of God, he practiced what he preached, and he preached what he practiced. Not only was he kind to the people, but he gave and he gave and he gave. And for what? So we're going to pause for a minute. So why did Nehemiah give it all away? What was his hope? Well, we've talked about the fear of God and the proper motivation that that was for his generosity. But it's very interesting, almost a little bit unusual, the way the chapter ends. There aren't many prayers like this in the Bible, at least not to my knowledge. We're in verse 19. He says, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. At first glance, it might almost seem like a proud prayer, huh? Look at what all I've done, and don't forget to pay me back. So you want to be a little cautious. I wouldn't take it uh, that way. But what is Nehemiah's hope here? It's not that the people will see him and thank him. It's ultimately that God himself will see and take delight, even smile upon what Nehemiah has done. His one plea is that God would remember him, that God would smile upon him, that God would take into account what Nehemiah has done for the sake of his people. In a certain sense, it's not an inappropriate prayer at all to ask God to remember the things that we have been able to do by his grace. But it's also uh, difficult to not see that there are certain ways in which Nehemiah is not simply a good leader. Be with me here. He's also very clearly a Christ-like leader. If the book of Nehemiah wants us to recognize that there are characters standing behind the characters, that there are kingdom figures at work behind the scenes, you cannot miss the fact that Satan has been about his business of trying to divide and conquer, to destroy and distract the people of God. And at the same time, praise God, God himself has been working as well. And one of the things that God is doing is shaping Nehemiah into a character that will show us the way to Christ himself. Nehemiah was, in many ways, a Christ-like character, if seen in no other way, in the fact that he denied himself for the sake of others. You might take a verse like Mark 10 and almost playfully paraphrase it and say something like this, For Nehemiah came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the portrait of the man that is painted. But it's a verse that actually speaks about someone else. Nehemiah was not Jesus. He was not the son of man who came 
in all of his perfection. He is not Jesus in many ways. Jesus, unlike Nehemiah, did not have sins that he needed to confess, as Nehemiah apparently does in this chapter. Jesus was not an imperfect leader, like you would all agree that Nehemiah was. He was rather a perfect leader. He was not burdened by the weight of his sins, but ultimately Jesus was burdened by the weight of our sins. And it is right to say of Jesus what Scripture says. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And God turned, nonetheless, his smile away from his son. In a certain sense, when God remembered us, when he smiled most brightly at his people, it was at the cross, and it was at that very moment that in remembering us and smiling at us, he turned his smile away from his son. But the smile of God returns in the resurrection. The great hope that people of God have is that God will indeed remember not simply what Nehemiah has done, but all the promises that Nehemiah was clinging to himself, promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And that smile does indeed return. For God smiles upon his people, not simply as he remembers our works, I'll return to that in a moment, but God smiles upon us, beloved, uh, for what great reason he smiles upon us because he remembers the work of his son. When God smiles at you, why is it? Is it because of the great works that you have done? Or is it because of the great work that Jesus has done on our behalf? God smiles upon us, and that smile never goes away because the Father never ceases now to smile at his Son. But if Nehemiah paints a portrait, Nehemiah 5, a portrait of an imperfect leader who points the way to the one who is perfect, it also shows uh, the imperfect people of God who begin a chapter embodying oppression and end the chapter embodying repentance and generosity. And it points to a really beautiful line of application. Uh, what is it that does indeed make God smile? Let me rephrase the question for a moment. When are we at our healthiest? When is the church at its healthiest? If Nehemiah 5 paints a picture of the people of God uh, arguably at their worst, devouring, neglecting one another, when are they at their healthiest? Well, uh, we are at our healthiest as Christians, when we see church not as about meeting our needs, i.e. it's all about us, but about caring for the body of Christ. There were opportunists in Nehemiah chapter 5, even among the people of God, who saw uh, this rebuilding of the wall thing, this here comes a famine thing, the uh, they're running out of money thing. They saw all those things as opportunities to prey upon the people of God, they became opportunistic. They were at their very worst. And it was a horrible thing to see. But by the end of the chapter, they were at their very best when they recognized that what they were doing was not good and that the mindset that they ought to have is one of generosity and caring for one another. And that truly is a portrait of the people of God at their best. Humble, contrite, repentant, but also embodying deeds of mercy and kindness. Christians are at their healthiest when they see the church not as about meeting their own needs, but ultimately about caring for one another. To say it differently, the church is the healthiest when the weakest of its members are cared for. Let me say it one other way. 
No chain is stronger than its what? Weakest link, right? No family is healthier than its what? Sickest member. And it's true of the body of Christ as well. So if we began the sermon by asking the awkward question, what makes Satan smile? Let's finish by asking the question, a very happy one, what makes God smile? Which I think is a really sweet way of ending the sermon. Hopefully, that's the way you think about it as well. What makes God smile? Well, it's when the people of God, rather than take advantage of one another, when they care for and come alongside one another. It makes God smile. And you know this. Uh, you even sense it in your own family. What makes a mom or a dad smile? It's not when the kids are fighting or backbiting or devouring one another, but rather when they're being kind, compassionate, caring for one another. Isn't that uh, arguably one of the reasons why the Bible says so much about the way that we treat one another and how important it is that we care for and esteem highly one another? That a healthy church is noted by its kindness and compassion towards even the weakest of its members. The church really is no healthier than its weakest member. When the Spirit of Christ works into us the mind of Christ, that we might embody the love of Christ and the church of Christ, that's what makes God smile. And if that's what makes God smile, it should make us smile as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, one of our great desires is to make you and not Satan smile. And we would confess, O Lord, that there are times uh, when a deep streak of selfishness can run through us. It can be embodied in our indifference toward the needs of others. It can be embodied in our taking advantage of others. And we ask, Lord, uh, that when uh, those streaks find their way into our lives, into our hearts, that you would bring to us conviction, that you grant to us repentance, and that you help us to see that what we are doing is not good. And at the same time, O oh Lord, uh, we thank you that your spirit is working in our hearts, even as it worked in Nehemiah's heart and in the heart of the people in Nehemiah chapter 5. We thank you that you are pleased, O oh God, not simply to leave us where we are, broken down walls, but rather to build us up by the word and by your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, especially for Jesus, the one who came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his own life a ransom for many. We thank you that in order to give your everlasting smile upon us, you turned your smile away from your son at the cross. And so, Lord, how much do we rejoice in the death and the resurrection of our Savior? But we pray that more and more you would help us to embody the love of God, the love of Christ, in the church of God among the people of Christ. For it is really a great joy uh, as a pastor and friend to look around a room and see people who truly do care for one another. Lord, help us. Help us to not view the church simply as that which tends to our needs. But rather, O Lord, might we understand what the scripture says over and over and in so many different ways that truly it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And we thank you, Lord, for that gospel generosity that has first come to us. And we pray that more and more you would help us to embody that spirit of generosity and that you'd continue to smile upon your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.